you know, we're very, very good at assuming that the recent past will continue indefinitely into the future. And that's why modeling is limited in its effectiveness. Getting that edge, getting that differentiated insight really informs your investment process and hopefully generate superior returns over the long term. Welcome to episode eight of IC Your Trade, brought to you by IC Markets. IC Markets is a leading high performance trading provider. IC Markets, beyond trading. I'm your host, Dan Petrie. Before we get into today's topic, let's lay out the rules of engagement. This is a bit like a game of professional sport, only instead of players, we're looking at financial assets. Instead of sporting coaches, we're getting the inside track from the titans of finance. We'll look at the form guide, the track record, and the tactical plays of our major players. Know the story behind the numbers. Go beyond the ordinary and prepare your game plan for the next trade. Let's get ready to rumble. Today we're talking about fundamental analysis, or simply put, what metrics does one apply in hitting the go button on a stock, a property, FX pair, and how broader information from economic data builds the case for investments. Do you frequently overthink the choices you have to make in the future? You might be dealing with analysis paralysis. What drives the price of investment? When to buy a stock or currency? Why are ratios important? And how much weight does one put on economic conditions and trend data? Just how does one bring it all together? To help explain fundamental analysis, we are joined by two of the most well-known investing minds in the market today. Chris Joy is a leading voice on funds management, data science, and central bank trends. Roger Montgomery is well-known to many. He is the founder of Montgomery Investment Management. He is one of the most sought-after voices on value investing and understanding the power of good research. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be with you, Dan. Thanks for having me, Dan. Chris, I'll start with you. The story is incredible. Economics, property, funds management. Fundamental analysis is something in terms of investment, which is often pushed aside as this you know, mythical black box. But for people listening to this for the first time, how would you describe the power of fundamental analysis, you know, bringing together economic trends, looking outside as well as what's going on in particular investment? Yeah, mate, it's really about edge at the end of the day. We um, are contesting highly efficient markets. So those markets have most of that publicly available information embedded in prices. So to add value to our clients, we need to find assets that are mispriced. Wrong number. And to do that, we need edge. And that can come through many potential vectors. So it could be the case that uh, it's deep data science, as you mentioned. So last year during the COVID-19 crisis, we built forecasting models for every country in the world that would live um, give us signals as to when those first waves were going to peak. Uh, it could have been more conventional due diligence investigating the efficacy of vaccines. So again, last year, um, you know, we formed the view in March that we'd get vaccines last year that were going to be uh, effective, that would be approved and distributed by the end of the year. And that was a, a very unconventional view. Uh, it could be conventional economic analysis. So again, if I take the case study of last year, we had a, a very contrarian view around housing markets, thinking that house prices would only fall 2%, uh, sorry, 0 to 5%, they fell 2%, and, but the, they'd quickly bounce back. And we held the view based on our analysis that house prices would start rising in September. Most people I mean, every bank in Australia felt that they'd fall 10 to 20%. Again, they only fell 2%. And we argued they'd rise 10 to 15% this year. So getting that edge, getting that differentiated insight um, really informs your investment process, allows you to find cheap assets and hopefully generate superior returns over the long term. 
I think the key point is you can't always be right. You can't get everything right all the time. And I think the, as Roger knows, the perennial problem for active investors like ourselves is effectively every day we're saying the market's wrong and we're right. And you've got to be pretty brave, <laughs> bold, uh, and have some form of edge in order to arrive at that conclusion. And it can take some time for markets to adjust to that new view of the world. So it took time for markets to uh, accept that there would be, for example, durable and effective vaccines. So just on that, uh, you mentioned Roger. Now, this is a name, Roger Montgomery, synonymous with value investing, synonymous with your good self, Chris, in terms of understanding the dark arts of bringing together a narrative. Roger, for the audience, investment analysis, fundamental analysis, just how important is it? I think it's cogent, you know, and, I, and I think that the logic of buying quality at a reasonable price is axiomatic. So fundamental analysis for us does those two things. It helps us to identify quality and it helps us to identify what a reasonable price actually is. There's a number of ways of actually achieving that. And for a few years, you know, I was a value investing stalwart and I, I'd say my, my adherence to pure value investing was bordering on quixotic. I've become, I think in recent years, galvanized by the performance of uh, a variety of fund managers in the equity space who have done very, very well. And it's, it's helped me to become more pragmatic and less dogmatic. So in terms of identifying quality, I had a very specific definition in the past based on fundamental analysis. I still adhere to that idea and that is that you want to buy businesses that create value at a rapid rate or for a long period of time or both. Uh, and the way to do that is to find businesses that can take large amounts of retained profit or large amounts of their profit, retain that profit and generate very high rates of incremental or return on that incremental capital. And in terms of finding a reasonable price, I still believe that uh, intrinsic value is very, very important. But, but what I've learned recently is that there are a number of ways of identifying value and there are a number of ways of identifying quality. And I think, for example, uh, if a business is going to grow at faster than what consensus expectations currently assume, then there can be value in plain sight. Uh, and in an environment of very, very low interest rates, that can be extremely rewarding. Uh, and so I guess I'm reinforcing what Chris said. You need an edge to actually identify those businesses uh, that are going to produce a different outcome to what consensus is expecting. Now, just on the edge part there, Chris talked about it. You just mentioned it then. You know, we can't ignore, you know, record low interest rates, the impact over the last 12 months, particularly around the COVID thing. I'll stay with you, Roger, just for one thing, just on record low interest rates. Does that distort a model for you? Does that, you know, change the game, so to speak? Well, you know, the easiest way for me to explain it is it is what it is. I mean, it's a chimera. <laughs> you know, it, it shouldn't logically exist, but it does. So we just live with it and we deal with it. And what it means is that the rest of the world is adopting uh, lower capitalization rates. They're adopting lower required returns. And so we have to do likewise. If we, if we are dogmatic and insisting on a 10% required return, we're not gonna find anything of value. We're not gonna be investing. We're gonna be sitting in cash. And consequently, we're gonna miss out on a lot of the returns that have, that have been accrued just in the last couple of years. Uh, and so we have to be pragmatic about it. We might not agree with it, but, but it exists and we have to deal with it. Chris, I'll just come back to you because you have taken contrarian views before in the past. Like I, I do remember 
reporting on your contrarian views. Just with you know, the last year, you said particularly in the property market and also you've you know, not speculated, but you've also spoken previously about, you know, things can often be overstated on the downside. How do you, for example, negotiate this new normal of record low interest rates, a global economy, which has a lot of different moving parts? Yeah, I think it's important just to uh, price it. So we've just got to accept and understand the first and second order consequences. What I mean by that is in March last year, everyone was looking at the fact that we have a global pandemic, the fact that that was very negative contemporaneously for asset prices. You know, so equities fell up to 30%, credit spreads blew wider than we'd ever seen before. But what I think active investors mostly got wrong in March last year was the second order policy response. You know, for us, it was clear in late February, we were gonna get a tsunami of QE. I wrote this in the AFR repeatedly in late February before the market meltdown. But it was also clear to us that we would have a market meltdown. So you know, again, on the 28th of Feb, I wrote that markets will not be out of price, a true global pandemic. And because of that, you would see a liquidity and a lot of riskier sectors evaporate and potentially catastrophic price falls. And that's what we got. But for us, the corollary of that was that central banks and treasuries would respond very aggressively. Now, they're a little bit slower than we expected. I thought they'd come out week one, week two in March. They came out sort of week three, week four, but they got there and their response was very forceful indeed. And that was the right response. You know, I was telling the RBA in February, you need to create a bridge between now and vaccines. And that's effectively what they ended up doing. Even though in late February, Frankly, I think the RBA, well, I don't think, I know the RBA disagreed with me. They did not think this was a big deal. They thought this was just a temporary blip. And even in, I think the first or second week of March, the RBA was publicly saying, listen, this is not like the GFC. There's no liquidity issues. There's no solvency issues. Um, and yet by the 19th of March, they were launching completely unprecedented monetary policy support. So for me, it's very important to be non-linear. What I mean by that is we tend to extrapolate out from our current circumstances and you know house prices are falling okay well then they must fall 10 to 20 percent or equities are falling the world must come to an end people find it i think biologically more you know, neurologically more difficult to imagine the unimaginable i mean i struggle like it's very very hard to wrap our heads around the rumpsodian known unknowns and unknown unknowns and and that's you know thinking about the impossible or thinking about the you know the unimaginable is you know, one of the, the great struggles of, of life generally. Um, and certainly I think in markets, it's always, you know, who would have thought in December 2019 that our lives for the next two years would be completely controlled by a pandemic and no one on the planet forecast that event, right? So that's the classic uh, known unknown, potentially an unknown unknown. But I think thinking through the derivative consequences of these shocks can render uh, really amazing opportunities. Um, but again, the market ultimately needs to be convinced that that contrarian view is right. So the market needs to revert, mean revert or normalize or, or reflex into that alternative perspective. And sometimes it's a bit painful. Actually, sometimes, I mean, this is slightly, this is a, something of a segue, but like a recent example is sometimes you need to engage in reflexivity. What I mean by that is sometimes it's not good enough just to have a different view of the world. Sometimes you actually need to shape the world to your view. So recently, uh, in our own market, you know, I run about $13 billion of fixed income. And the New South Wales government came out in June this year, and they had an amazing budget, the deficit was $12 billion smaller than expected. And, and we had expected a much smaller deficit from New South Wales, all the states and the federal government. 
The normal consequence of that is they all issue less debt. And that was true of every single state and territory and the federal government. They all announced downgrades to their debt issuance, except New South Wales. New South Wales announced twice as much debt issuance as the market expected. Now that shocked their bonds, the interest rates on their bonds jumped, and we doubled our exposure to New South Wales. But the driver of that shock was a proposal, which was that the New South Wales government should raise tens of billions of dollars of extra debt to put into the share market, right? So to basically run what, what we'd call a levered equity carry trade. Now this was, we think, a terrible idea. There's really no precedent for governments leveraging up their balance sheets to punt on stocks. Um, and we went to the New South Wales government in June and said, listen guys, you know, we, we think you should cease and desist and, and basically drop this proposal. Then obviously the lockdown hit and they had an excuse. Um, but it took two months of inertia before finally, you know, belatedly they kind of saw the light. So. Uh, we went public with our concerns and there were like eight AFR articles on the subject. The Labor opposition you know, was very, very exercised by it, as were the rating agencies and the banks. And Dominic Perrottet set up this fund as a fiscal shock absorber in 2018 to reduce debt, to actually repay debt. And I think his great vision had been hijacked by some of the bureaucracy that thought that it would be a, a great idea if New South Wales' debt issuance agency, T-Corp, issued tens of billions of dollars of debt, and then T-Corp put that money into T-Corp funds, which they get paid to manage. Uh, and so that suddenly they were running an extra 10 to $20 billion, say, of, of equities, which they earn fees on, which they pay themselves bonuses on. They obviously don't completely agree with what I'm saying right now, but, but the key point was there was a, uh, a perturbation in the force. Uh, there was a dysfunction, and so we needed to become more activist, and we needed to convince the New South Wales government this was a terrible idea and they should drop it, and they did, uh, they have. So, so that's that's fantastic, and, and it, you know, just to, this is not to criticise Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales Treasurer. It was just that I think his advisors had run off in a in a bit of a, a crazy direction. But I think that's where people like Roger and I. Sometimes it's about the edge and the analysis and the insight. Sometimes you actually need to reflexively shift the probabilities in the world itself by convincing people that things need to change in order to get the outcomes you imagine. Right. So just on, you know, you talk about reflexivity, you talk about being able to adjust the conditions. Roger said the word pragmatism before, just to kind of distill it into one word, is Chris Joy becoming a pragmatist or has always been a pragmatist? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's a lot of merit to that, that line of thinking. I mean, the way I put it in my own words is that definitely, um, you know, I set Cooler by Capital up in 2011 um, and we launched our first fund in February 2012. And you know, I have 30 staff, 14 analysts, five portfolio managers, four of those guys have PhDs, there's two university medalists. Um, and I think between 2012 and probably 2016, we were much more ivory tower. So we'd have these big quantitative models and they'd say an asset was cheap. And we just assumed that the market would get that idea and you know, the price would rise. What we learned was um, it's not as simple as that. You need to understand the non-quantitative factors that, that influence asset prices. So an asset may be cheap, it can stay cheap for a long period of time, for example, because of some sort of regulatory influence that you know, requires banks uh, to avoid that asset or, or hits banks with a high capital charge for holding that asset um, as, as one instance. But yeah, I think um, integrating into our investment process, qualitative factors and what we call technicals, and technicals are really the supply and demand factors that influence asset pricing. You know, whether people wanna buy or sell a bond um, is just as important as what the mathematics and statistics tell you about the pricing of the bond. 
So, Roger, I'm just going to move now to kind of where we talk about big plays. And we said before, you know, you said pragmatism, that's becoming a theme in terms of what Chris was just saying. In terms of record low interest rates, in terms of the market we see, we've also seen a lot of FOMO people, that fear of missing out. What do you say to people looking to put an investment toe in the water and particularly to your clients? So in terms of where do you think the next play is? Because there's a lot of cheap money floating around that's going into top line equities. Is smaller caps a place to perhaps play? Yeah, look, I'm a neophyte when it comes to fixed interest. My wheelhouse is equities, so I'll stick purely to equities. I think what Chris was saying was absolutely fundamentally right. Humans are no good at picking turning points. You know, we're very, very good at, at, at assuming that the recent past will continue indefinitely into the future. And that's why modelling is limited in its effectiveness. So, you know, very rarely do models particularly in equities, very rarely do you see sell-side analysts, for example, put some sort of major turning point into their model for a company's prospects. And so these low interest rates, we assume for now uh, that they remain in place. Fundamentally, I've, I've got a view that inflation is structurally lower now than it was in the past for two primary reasons, but primarily, that well, the main one rather is, is that I think pressure on wages uh, is structurally lower now than it, than it has been in the past. Uh, the reason for that is I think we've got significantly less unionised labour now, both in the United States and Australia than we had decades ago. Uh, and also, while we've all been distracted by COVID, the world of technology has had huge amounts of money invested in it in the recent past. So while we've all been talking about COVID, the amount of money that's gone into automation, for example, um, has surpassed anything in recent times. Uh, so the consequence of that is that when we come out of COVID and we've got the luxury of talking about things other than COVID, we'll then be talking about automation again and we'll discover that the pressure on wages is significantly lower because there's so much more of the labour process that's been replaced by technology. Uh, and so in that lower inflation environment, while there may be blips along the way, I think we see generally lower interest rates longer term uh, and that means we continue to assume that in that environment companies that will do well uh, structural growth companies companies that benefit from tactical uh, tactical plays for or investments that benefit from a tactical assumption for example uh, a reopening and we want to own those sorts of businesses now in that environment there's always going to be companies that do well uh, and we just want to find those Chris, quick comment from you on technology, that digital transformation Roger alluded to. Is that something that you see as the big play, you know, beyond uh, the COVID uh, situation we currently find ourselves in? Yeah, I don't have strong views on that. Like, I mean, the economist uh, perspective on this would be that um, we are having disruptive shocks to the way in which we live and work and operate, but those shocks are likely to be one-off events, um, albeit ones that do happen you know, periodically through time. They're not likely to be growth events. And what I mean by that is they're not likely to be shocks that um, continue every single day. And so that's the real question uh, for the economy. Is technology going to be a series of level effects rather than growth effects, a series of one-off changes um, rather than perpetually increasing growth and productivity. I mean, obviously in our own markets, technology is immensely important. One of the um, unusual facets of the fixed income market is 
that when we trade bonds, so we've traded probably 50 billion of over-the-counter bonds since the start of last year, and they're not executed in the main digitally. So most of that work is done, those transactions are done bilaterally, and they're uh, done literally over the phone, and they're not executed by clicking a button like you would in equities. And the bond market is kind of like the final frontier in terms of the uh, paucity of technology and digital disintermediation. Uh, and that brings with it actually interesting opportunities because what we find is that the OTC bond market is much less efficient. That's over the counter you're talking for just for, yeah. Yeah, that's right. The over the counter bond market is less efficient because again, if I've bought and sold 50 billion of bonds in the last couple of years, none of those prices are actually displayed anywhere. They're not publicly available. Uh, it's very different to the equity markets where if I trade 50 billion of stocks, everyone can see the prices on the day that they're executed. So you get this immensely opaque market that's actually hard for retail to access, that's dominated by institutional investors, uh, but which also has uh, real opportunities because you get a much higher propensity for pricing errors and valuation mistakes. So Roger, I just want to get a comment and I'll keep it uh, shortish, but um, for, for investors, you know, like when they, you know, for people who have now got portfolios, a lot of, you know, older investors, what do you say in terms of research, fundamental analysis? What do you say, what do you need to look for? You really need to be confident that you know something about the company that other people don't know or that they're getting wrong. So closing the loop on, on Chris's introductory comments, um, you, you do need to be certain of an edge. Uh, you need to be confident that you have some view uh, that, it, that is not widely held and it is fundamentally right. Now, interestingly, timeframes can play a part so it might be that um, your view uh, appears to be wrong in the short term, but if in the long term it's absolutely right, then that will present an opportunity to add to that position uh, and do very well. So time frame plays a part as well, but I think ultimately you need to know the basics. You need to understand how business works. Uh, it's important to understand how it makes money uh, and it's probably more vital than anything else to understand the company's competitive position and its competitive prospects. So is it going to be the winner in its race uh, longer term? And if it is, uh, if it's going to be the winner, then it's possible it's going to have some monopoly characteristics and that's going to help sustain high rates of return on equity and that will deliver value, uh, a value add for the company and, and for the investor in that company. Epic wins and fails time. Roger, in terms of your investment experience, do you know anybody or you have a story of investor that's badly misread the market, hasn't done their research and, and had a failure or an epic win? Oh, well, in terms of epic wins, we've, we've had a lot of investments that have done extremely well and we've done well by not having to be smart very often. We've done well really by just making the right acquisition uh, and hanging on to it irrespective of what the forecasts are for the economy or for interest rates and so on. So if we just stick to businesses that generate high rates of return on incremental capital uh, and they can sustain their competitive position such that they can sustain that high rate of return, um, you'll do well. So we've done, we've done that quite a bit. Um, the epic fail for me, and, and I'll, I'll be the first one to admit it, is that between 2016 and 2019, uh, we held far too much cash. And that was because of that dogmatic attachment to high required rates of return and insisting that we wouldn't invest in anything if we couldn't get 
uh, we couldn't see how we were going to get 10% or 15%. And that was just, in hindsight, was, was a big error. Uh, as soon as we brought down our required returns, uh, we were fully invested again and, and we could back our stock picking. And backing my team to pick stocks uh, has been rewarding because they're very good at it. Uh, and so as long as we're fully invested, we do well. So that was the epic fail for me in the recent past, that dogmatic attachment to high required returns. Sorry, before we go, just a couple of words of wisdom. Roger, when talking about uh, fundamental analysis, do you have some words of wisdom uh, for the listeners? I'm going to quote uh, Charlie Munger because I think he summarised it perfectly. Uh, your job as an investor is to purchase at a rational price a part interest of an easy to understand business whose earnings are virtually certain to be materially higher. Um, if you put together a portfolio of businesses whose earnings march upwards over the years, so will the value of the portfolio. I, I think that quote neatly summarises what the job of every equity investor is. Chris Joy, Roger Montgomery, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on I See Your Trade. Thanks for having me, Dan. Good to be with you, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity. And thank you for joining me on episode eight of I See Your Trade, brought to you by IC Markets. IC Markets, the leading high-performance trading provider. IC Markets, beyond trading. Thank you to our guests for being part of the podcast. I hope you've learned something about fundamental analysis. It's been a pleasure having your company. I'm Dan Petrie, and I'll join you next time.